Welcome everyone to The Great Sources Season 3, Episode 18. The first of a series of lectures about the crown jewel of Torah Hashkafa, the guide of the perplexed, the Meirah Nevuchim, by the Rambam. At this point, we've completed in this season, we've gone through Emunus Edes of Rapsadi Gain, Chayvis Halavavis, Rachim Pekude, the Kuzir Budalevi, Emunah Rama, lastly, of Avraham Ibn Da'ud. And now we have reached, in chronological order, in order, we have reached the Murnevuchim. Before we plunge in and start talking about this Sefer, I want to remind everyone about this new essay series that I've um, begun. I send it out through a subscription or email subscription, and the link is there in the description of this episode. You can click there on the Substack link and you'll find that series. Please take a look, subscribe, read. You can learn and grow a lot from them. Um, also, if someone wants to sponsor a one of these shurim in whole or in part, please reach out to me. My email is there in the description too. Okay, now here we're ready to plunge in and start contemplating, start considering, learning and talking about the Maradavuchim, the God of the Perplexity of the Now, we're going to do something different than we've done with the previous four books. The previous four from I presented to you in concise, summarized version, familiarizing you with, with the book. We can't do that with the Marit Vuchim. It would be impossible to do that due to the nature of the book, the way that it's written. I think it would also be a disservice to the Rambam and his intention in, in how he wrote this book and who he wrote the book for. So those to understand that, well, I hope you'll understand that more as we learn more about the Marit Vuchim. But we're going to do, instead of presenting the full book from beginning to end in summarized form, I'm going to select certain things I'm going to focus on, one for this lecture, and then we'll pick a few more topics for the, for the next uh, three. So the first question, of course, you want to ask is, okay, what's this book about? Now, it's not so easy to answer that question. The Rama himself talks about what it's about in numerous different places, and he gives sort of different answers. So I wouldn't even give you, I won't even tell you that in summarized form at this point. I just want to put that out there, that the definition or the purpose of the book itself is unclear. Um, on one, in one sense, you could read the Rambam as saying that it's about reconciling between what a person knows through logic, philosophy, and what he seems, how he seems to understand the Torah on a surface level. The other hand, the Rambam also says in numerous places that the purpose of the Moira, or the guide, is to teach the secrets of the Torah are called Maisa Merkava and Maisa Bereshis, the works of the chariot, explaining the Merkava and Yechazkel and explaining Bereshis. So that's also something the Rambam says. We're not going to go into that specifically today, but we will talk about that peripherally. Before that, before we go in, and I want to talk a little bit about the editions of the Mardavuchim. Like the previous works that we've been looking at, this book was written in Judeo-Arabic. And we're reading it then in translation, unless you happen to read Judeo-Arabic, and you should try to learn it because you have all these great books written in that language. But I assume you're reading it in, well, let's start with the Hebrew translation. So in the Hebrew translation, the there's the classic, we can call it the classic translation of Shmuel Ibn Tibbon. And that edition has, typically has the the classic of Afrashim, that is Shem Tov Kreskas, not Tepchaste Kreskas, uh, Efoidi and the Abar Benel, who writes at length on the Rambam. The advantage of that translation is that the Rambam himself corresponded with Shmulam and Tibon and gave him some instructions about how to translate. So it sort of has the Rambam's stamp of approval. It's, if you're familiar with other translations done by the family, the Tibon family, it's, it could be difficult to read. It has a sort of a syntax of its own. But it's sort of worth the effort because if you, once you learn his way of writing, then you can read it much more like a safer. It's much more easy to recognize that each word has gravity, each word means something very specific when you're using that translation because of its classical flavor, I would say. There's another old translation from Al-Kharizi. I'm not familiar with that one, so I'm not going to comment. And then we get to the modern translations in Hebrew. We have the Kapach translation, which is excellent for its readability and full of great footnotes. 
Um, even more recently, we have the Michal Schwartz edition, which is one I use mostly two volumes. Uh, I'll put some links in the description here so you can take a look and see what, what we're talking about. Whatever links I find, I'll, I'll throw into the description here. That's very nice for its readability, especially if you're more, somewhat comfortable with a more modern Hebrew. And also he has some great, great footnotes. And then if you want a really easy read, and really makes it very clear, there's the new edition from the Mifal Mishnah Torah, which I happen to be uh, somewhat involved in some editing there for them. And that is a, a extremely eminently reason, readable and explains things very, very well. Um, they explain things so well that I find that sometimes they miss some depth or they explain things in a way that's a little more shallow than uh, actually intended. That's something to be aware of. Um, so that's that for the, I think we covered the, um, the Hebrew translation I'm not familiar with. Then there's the English translation. If you want to read the, the guide in English, that's also perfectly, that's perfectly fine. I recommend it. So the edition that I use for English reading is the uh, Pinnis, the Shlomo Pinnis edition, which is um, excellent for its literal translation. And you have to get used to it. It's not how you would speak, but it's a, it's a very good read, very good translation. There's the other translation, the Friedlander, with which I'm not that familiar with. I'm not going to comment on, on that one either. Now, of course, you have a few editions of it. You're better served because there are going to be cases where you want to figure out, well, what exactly did the Rambam mean? And, you know, some things could depend on a very specific nuance. So that's why it's good to have more than one edition. And if you have a question, you can consult a different translation and see the various translations and what they're trying to capture. And sometimes you can use that to figure out well, what the Rambam actually mean. Of course, if you can get somewhat familiar with Judeo-Arabic, that's very helpful. You can look up the original terms and there's, I think I'll put this in the in the description too. There's a wonderful footnote. The Friedberg um, Geniza Project has this Judeo-Arabic section where you can search for Judeo-Arabic terms. So, so once you get a little familiar with the terms that Ramam uses, you can search, you know, where did the Ramam use that term and um, compare it back with the English, with the Hebrew ones. Okay, this is advanced. You sort of have to know a little Arabic for that. But if you're really serious about learning the Buchim, it's definitely worth getting, getting somewhat familiar with that. With, with the Judea Arabic, you can get that version too. You can find it out there, although not really being sold in farm stores. You can find it and print it out. So I'm particularly, like I said, I usually read the um, with the Schwartz edition, and um, that's what I'll do here. But if I want to read in English, I'm going to be reading from the Pinnis edition. So one more point, um, one more point is that you know about about the literature, about the Rambam, the literature about of the Murdevuchim, and about the Murdevuchim. Of course, there's so many Svarim that ran on the Murdevuchim. Especially recently, there's a lot more interest in it. There seems to be a resurgence of interest in it. I'm not going to give you an overview of the literature, but I'll just say one thing that the Rambam himself in the introduction says that he says you should learn everything that's worthy of learning. And let's see how he says this. And constantly study this treatise. So the Rambam is basically telling you that the Mordechai is not something that you should learn once, twice, 10, 30, 40 times. It's something you should be constantly studying along with everything else that you should be, that you should learn. And that's something that the, the sense of that is something that you could find if you do this. If you constantly learn the Mordechai along with all of your other studies, you'll see how it continuously yields um, more depth and continuously elucidates everything else that you're learning in the Torah even more. So that's the kind of book we're talking about, where it's sort of like you, you never really complete it. It's an ongoing study. And part of that is because the Rambam talks about, the Rambam, as I alluded to earlier, the Rambam doesn't write things in a, in, a, in a complete discursive way. He makes allusions, and he tells you that if you want to understand the whole book, you have to put together the chapters and explain one based on the other. So this is the kind of book that grows on you. The more you learn it, and the more you go back to things, the more you'll constantly be finding, and obviously I'm talking it from my own experience, the more you'll be finding more new things as you 
as you study it and as you revisit it. Okay, so although we can't really say in one word what the book is about, what this book is out to teach you, I will give you a general overview of the structure. The Mernabuchim, which has three volumes, three halakim, 178 chapters in total. And here's the setup. It has some introductions, which are uh, tremendous studies in their own right. Chapters 1 through 49 are mostly about words and how words have more than one meaning, and that words, when they're applied to God, mean something other than their surface meaning. A chapter 50's, chapters 50 through 60 are about the attributes of Hashem, and what does it mean when we talk about Hashem having certain qualities or characteristics. It talks about the names of Hashem, then he talks about the proofs to the existence of Hashem, His unity and His incorporeality according to the Kalam, which is the Islamic school of theology. And then the beginning of, of the second volume <clears throat> are the Rambam's own proofs to the existence of God, His unity, and His incorporeality. Then he talks about angels, and he talks about creation at length, the question of whether the world always existed or whether it was created ex nihilo. And then in, um, in volume 2, chapter 30, he talks about the Maisebracious, the explanation of the chapters in the Torah about creation. And then from there to the end of the second volume, he talks about prophecy. Beginning of the third volume, he talks about Maisebracious, recover the work of the chariot, the description, the explanation of divisions of Yechazgal um, when he beheld Hashem's chariot and Hashem's throne. And then he talks about the purpose of creation and the theodicy, the, the problem of evil, the nature of divine providence, the reasons for the commandments, for the mitzvahs, and then the last four chapters are a conclusion and a, a way of, of worship, of what the highest level of worshiping God is. Now, I mentioned earlier that we can't give you an overview. One of the reasons is because the Rambam himself says a fascinating thing. And this is in his instruction as an introduction. He says that he makes an oath. I adjure every reader of this treatise not to comment upon a single word of it and not to explain to another anything in it save with that, that which has been explained and commented upon in the words of the famous sages of our Lord who preceded me. In other words, Rambam is saying that he doesn't want you reading this and then quoting it. Because you might understand it contrary to his intention, and then you're repaying evil for good. So Ram says, I don't want you to pick up this book and then just quote it. What he does want is that those who have the book, all into whose hands it falls, should consider it well. So the Ram doesn't want you to quote from here to someone else, but he wants anyone that has gets a hold of this book to read it. And the point there, I think, is that the Rambam is the Rambam was concerned about the fact that he wrote this book to, as a totality, as one whole. Which, as he writes also in this introduction, if you wish to grasp the totality of this, what this treatise contains, you must connect its chapters one with another. So you can't just take it out of context, because to understand this book, you have to see the whole picture, you have to see the context. And what's fascinating, and this is one aspect of that, is that the Rambam writes in his introduction, he gives the reasons why there are contradictions in books. And he says there are seven causes that account for contradictory contrary statements to be found in any book or compilation. It's an amazing thing that in the introduction to the Rambam's book, what does he talk about, among other things? He talks about how there are seven reasons why there might be contradictions in books, what the reasons for those contradictions are, and which of those kinds of reasons appear in this book. And one of them, the seventh cause, is very complex, and there's a lot of controversy about it. But the Rambam says that the seventh kind of contradiction only appears in his book, the Mordebuchim, and in the Madrashim, and maybe in the Nevi'im. The point that I'm making is, I don't want to go into the ideas of contradictions, but the point is that there's a way of teaching what the Ram is out to teach in this book, which is utilizing contradictions. And that's because, in short, when there's certain things that you can't understand fully, certain things that can't be understood fully, so you might approach it one time in one with one aspect, one angle, and another time a different angle. That's in short the idea of the seventh contradiction. But that's what you have a lot of times in the Marinavucha, you'll have all the time people finding contradiction. And before people explaining the, the book, the guy for the perplex, finding contradictions, and we'll say, okay, this is the fifth type of contradiction, this is the seventh type of contradiction, because the book was written with contradictions. And 
sort of, you could argue, we're not going to go into that, but you could argue that until you've discovered the contradiction, you don't understand it fully. Because the nature of this kind of teaching, of the teachings kinds of secrets, that you can't explain them fully, it only makes that clear, and you can only explain it with illusions, and illusions are going to contradict each other because they're not the full truth. So that's why, going back to the, the oath that the Rahman makes, you can't just take something out of this book, pluck it out, and just repeat it. You have to immerse yourself in this book. Because that's what it is. It's an ongoing process of learning. The more of the book you learn, and the more you start explaining the book based on other things in the book, the more you're going to understand. So he wants everyone. He says clearly, he says, anyone who has this book should learn it, which means everyone should learn it. You should buy an edition and start learning it and start thinking about it. But you can't just say, oh, you know what, I'm just going to get a little bit of a, of a sense of what it's about because I'm going to hear a couple of students that summarize it. That, that would be a disservice. It's impossible. So that's what we're going to do here is at least jump in and pick a few topics where we can dive in and get a sense of, of what the book is about really from inside. Okay? So what I want to do is as follows. Um, as an introduction, or as, a, as a, an entry point, maybe I should say, into this great work, I want to show that the Rambam considered this work to be somewhat, to have some prophetic level. Something about this book puts it on the level of the books of the prophets. And that perhaps it was actually written with divine inspiration. And by approaching this question, looking at this question, so the question we're setting out over here is, how does the Ramam see the Mernavuchim, or does the Ramam see the Mernavuchim as somehow being on a level with the prophetic books? And um, does that because the book itself, the Mernavuchim itself, was written with divine inspiration? And we're going to use this question to, as, as an entry point to understanding something about the Mernavuchim. So as I mentioned, one of the things Ramam says the book is about is about the secrets of the Torah. The secrets of the Torah, the secret meaning of the Torah. The secret meanings of the Torah are epitomized by Ma'as Eberishas, Ma'as Merkava, which is the explanation of the first pack of, of creation, of the first few parakim, I'm sorry, of Beresh's, and of the vision of the chariot. The Ramam identifies and explains what Masabrishis and Masimakov is. One place he says Masabrishis is physics and Masimakov is metaphysics. And he explains that understanding physics properly is a means, a path to, toward perceiving God because you need to understand the world. And then you can understand how God interacts with it and reach, and reach the divine knowledge, which is the ultimate purpose. In other places, he, he defines these things as, an, an, in a broader sense, I'm not going to go into what the exact definition of these things is. In Hilchus Yisrael HaTayr, the first four Prakim and the Mishnah Torah, he has a little bit of a different definition of what these things include, and that's an, a study in and of itself, what the definition of Maisei Mishnah Maisei is. But clearly, these are secrets of the Torah, and this is stated to be the purpose of the teaching of this book. And the Rambam says that he was exceedingly apprehensive about setting down those things that I wish to set down in this treatise. He was very hesitant to actually go ahead and write this book. And the reason is, he says, because these are concealed things. These are things that were hidden. About which none of them has been set down in any book in our nation during this time of Gullus. So in the time of exile, says the Rambam, very interesting, note that, that in the time of exile, no book has been written about these secrets that the Rambam is now going to write this book about. So he's doing a major innovation. So here we're studying the Rambam in a line of, of thinkers. But the Rambam here basically says that the four people that we've studied before him have not done what he's done here. He's doing something fundamentally different. And that's because he's talking about the secrets of the Torah. Something that requires, as we said before, a kind of teaching in, in, with contradictions and riddles. But this is something that no book was written in our nation in the days of Gullus. In time of exile, which basically means since the prophets. 
since the days of prophecy, since there was a Beis HaMikdosh and they were writing books of prophecy, in the, in the time of exile, no books had been written. So how then can I innovate and set them down in a book? So the Rambam was very worried about the fact that he's doing something, an innovation, that um, is, is not something that's appropriate. And in fact, there's another place in the Mayer Nebuchim, and that's in the Chilik Aleph, Perak Ayin Aleph, chapter 71, where the Rambam talks about why nothing was written, even of Halacha. At first, the law was, was oral. Even the legalistic science of the law was not put down in writing in the olden times. Because the priest said, Dvarim Shaduch Sav, Dvarim Shaduch Sav, you weren't allowed to write the halacha, the halacha of the Torah Shavapeh. And the reason, the Rambam says, the reason why it was, it was forbidden to be written down, it was meant to prevent what has ultimately come about in this respect. I mean, the multiplicity of opinions, the variety of schools, the confusions occurring in the expression of what is put down in writing. In other words, once something's put down in writing, everyone could understand it in his own way instead of having to study it from a master. Really, all questions should have been within the authority of the Besan Haggadol. But now that it's written, we have all these debates, those disputes. Now, if there was an insistence that the legal, the halacha, should not be written, all the more so could none of the Sisrei Torah, the mysteries of the Torah, not been set down in writing and be made accessible to the people. On the contrary, they were transmitted by a few men belonging to the elite to a few of the same kind. There was a transmission, an oral transmission of the secrets of the Torah, but it wasn't put down in writing. And this, says the Rambam, was the cause that necessitated the disappearance of these great roots of knowledge from the nation. See, the Rambam holds that he doesn't have a, a tradition about these secrets that he's now divulging. He believes that they were lost from the nation. And the reason why they were lost is because they weren't written down and they were only passed down orally. And he rediscovered them with his own wisdom. That's what we're going to talk about soon. And you will not find, I'm going back to the text of the God for the Perplexed, you will not find with regard to them anything except slight indications and pointers occurring in the time of the Madrasha. So, so these things were not allowed to be written down because you couldn't even write down halacha. Of course, you couldn't write down the secrets. And here the Rama did a major innovation. He's going to write a book, the likes of which hasn't been written in the times of Gullus. And he's going to write down these secrets in a very interesting way that requires a lot of deciphering and, and a lot of work. But he's doing something which is sort of forbidden. Goes against the law about how the Torah was supposed to be transmitted. So on what basis is he doing this? So he follows and he says like this. He says, I relied on two principles to take this step and make this great innovation. Do something that hasn't been done in the time of exile. So my mom says, I did, I, I'm relying on two things. One being, and the other one being, So the Ram says that sometimes you're allowed to do something that's not fully um, halakhally appropriate when it's when it's a time it's necessary. And of course it's talking about, referring to, sometimes you need to write down Torah where which shouldn't be written down. Gemara talks about Sefer Goda being written down because Eis Las Hashem, it's necessary. People might forget the Torah. People might forget it. And we'll talk about the drama was very concerned that his teachings will be forgotten. So he decided that it's a time, it's a time to do something for the sake of Hashem, and therefore he could do something that's not completely within the letter of the law of the Halacha. And secondly, he says, All your actions should be for the sake of heaven. Okay. So the Rabbah says that there's this idea, and he fleshes this out more in the Shemite Prakim in his introduction to pick I was we'll get to soon. But um, that there's this idea that if you do everything for the sake of heaven, that allows you to do things that are not technically within the letter of the law. But before we explore that further, I want to point out that the Ramam is saying that he did something that hasn't been done since the time of the Nevi'im. 
So I want to explore this further. I want to show you something really striking, which would give us a window into um, the greatness of the, the Rambam and the greatness of this project too. In the fifth chapter of the eight chapters that are the introduction to Pekka the Rambam talks about this very statement, this very idea of that everything a person does should be for the sake of heaven. And the Rambam explains how every single action a person takes can be dedicated, can be devoted to one goal, which is knowledge of God. Every single thing you do can lead to this action, whether it's preparatory, whether it's immediately purposeful for that end. A person can and should, because Rambam believes that the purpose of man, the completion, the perfection of man, is knowledge of God. Is knowledge. And knowledge of God is the truest knowledge, the highest knowledge. So everything a person does can be the shem shemayim for the sake of heaven. It means every action a person takes can be ultimately for that goal. And the Rambam says, he explains at length how a person could do this and gives examples of that. And then he says that this level is very high and difficult to reach. And only a few people who train themselves will reach it. This level of doing all your actions for the sake of heaven. And the Rambam says if a person, if you find a person described in that way, where everything he does, he does for the sake of heaven, I don't think that he's on less of a level than a prophet. I do not think he's less, on less of a level than a prophet. Okay, so, you know, right there you have to think. When the Ram uses an expression like that, you have to ask yourself, what does he mean? A person does everything for the sake of heaven, he's not a prophet. So why is the Rambam, what, the, what exactly does the Rambam mean that I don't think he's less than a prophet, but he's not a prophet? Why isn't he a prophet if he's no less than a prophet? And if he isn't a prophet, how could you say he's no less than a prophet? And furthermore, fascinating thing, and this I think was a window to understand what the Rambam is doing there. The Rambam continues and says that this idea of doing everything for the sake of heaven, he says this is included in the teaching, even if you're doing an Avera. And he says, means even though some aspect of sin in some action, you should, if you're doing it for the sake of Hashem, then it's appropriate. You can do it. So here we have this idea that allows some bending of the law, perhaps on an outright transgression, like a Navi can make a Hirasha. A prophet can actually say that it's necessary to abrogate a law temporarily, to be Machal Shabbos, anything but from a Nazara, and there's a mitzvah to listen to him, as Ramam talks about at length. This person who Ramam says, I don't believe is less than a Navi, is allowed to do something which has an aspect of sin, an aspect of sin, but I don't think he's allowed to temporarily allow, do something which is a, an outright sin. How do you define that is a good question. Then he continues and says that this whole idea, which he describes in this chapter, in this, in this chapter 5 of the introduction to others, this whole idea, Chazal have included in a very concise expression. Such that if you think about those words, how the words that Chazal used for this great matter, this great matter about what books were written about it and haven't yet completely encompass the whole con the whole concept you should know that that statement was said because with divine power without any doubt at all and that is the statement in Pekhi so the Ram says that the statement the statement that teaches that a person should do everything for the sake of heaven that statement itself was said with divine aid and the Ram says this in a few places it's really interesting to think about why he says it and how he says it. But in this instance, something really interesting, which is that the kind of level of person who the Ramam says, I think is no less than, I don't think he's less than, lower than a Navi, this statement, the concise statement with which Chazal described that person, that statement itself was said with divine aid. Okay, now think about this. The Ramam is telling us in his introduction where he says, I didn't want to take the step to write a book, the likes of which has not been written in Gullus. But I relied on this idea of Now, one thing we know is, as he says in the, in the Shemayim Prakim, doing everything in Shemayim allows a person to take steps that are 
in to some extent, not fully within the bounds of what the law, what the halacha prescribes. And he can, he can bend it. He can say, look, now we have to do it. But we also know that the Rambam says, and we have to explain this, now, I'm going to get back to that. The Rambam says that a person who, who does everything in Shem Shemaim, and the Rambam was a person like that, that's what he, he tells us about himself, that he relied on this idea of to write this book and do this innovation. And that person, according to Rambam, is not less than a prophet, although he's not a prophet. So the fact that the Rambam is writing a book, the likes of which hasn't been done since the times of prophecy, and the fact that he's relying on, on, on having attained some level of spirituality, which makes him no less than a prophet, is probably related. Okay? So that's a clue to think about what, what this is about, what the innovation is, and on what, what the Rambam relied upon to write it. So I want to give you a sense, I think, what the Rambam might mean when he says that a person who does everything in Shemaim is not less than a Navi. So we asked, well, you know, what does he mean he's not less than a Navi? But he's not a prophet, so what do you mean he's not less than a prophet? Now the Rambam, when he talks about prophecy, and this is in the end of Chelek Bez, end of volume 2 of the Marek the last um, 18 or so prokim are about prophecy. And the Rambam says the following. The Rambam's opinion is that prophecy, I'm not going to tell you this at length, I'll give you just a, a basic idea. According to the Rambam, prophecy works as follows. When a person's intellect is perfected, and the focus of his intellect is also perfected, he only cares about knowing the truth, and his mind, his intellect is consumed with seeking the truth about the important things, then, if he also has a good, strong imagination, his imagination is going to put forth images that are influenced by his intellect, Images that reflect the truth, or that are parables, or or um, symbols of true things. That, in a nutshell, is is prophecy according to the Rambam. It's natural. Now, even though it's natural, the Rambam further says that God can withhold it. So it's a natural occurrence, but God can make it not happen. And the Rambam says that if God would withhold prophecy from a person who's worthy of it, that would be miraculous. Because prophecy is a natural phenomenon, according to the Rambam. It is a miraculous phenomenon of God withholding prophecy, just like God could paralyze someone's, someone's hand miraculously. So too can God withhold prophecy from someone miraculously. Now, there are contradictions, as I mentioned earlier, there's always contradictions in the Marinabukhi. And there are contradictions whether the reason why prophecy is no longer prevalent in the times of exile Again, the Ram talks about the times of Golas. Remember, I said the Ram says no book was written. Bisman um, Golas about this this subject, right? And now he's writing a book about a topic that was never written about Bisman in time of exile. Now, in the time of exile, as I said, is when there's no prophecy. Well, why is there no prophecy in exile? If prophecy is a naturally occurring phenomenon, why is there no prophecy in exile? So the Ram has two conflicting reasons. One of them is because when we're in exile, the, we suffer from atzvus and atzvus, from laziness and sadness, right? We're lazy because we can't, we don't control over our lives, so we can't create the kinds of societies and systems that we wish. And we're sad because we're forced to do things that we don't want to do. And if you're sad and lazy, then your imagination can't function, can't, it's not going to be robust, it's not going to be robust and healthy enough to serve in this role of, of generating these, these kinds of images that reflect the truth. That's, that's the Rambam's idea there. In another place, he says that, well, remember I mentioned that God can withhold prophecy miraculously. In another place, the Rambam says that, in fact, during the exile, God withholds prophecy miraculously. So a possible solution is that they're both true. They're both true, meaning to say, in general, in general, most people cannot attain the level necessary to prophesy in exile. So in general, there's not going to be prophecy in exile. Those select few rare elite people who can attain those levels, they also won't prophesy in exile due to miraculous intervention where God won't make them prophesy. So, so now you might ask, well, wait a second, if God miraculously doesn't make people prophesy, 
why do we need the first reason that they're not worthy of it or they haven't reached that naturally so that has to do with how the Rambam understands miracles miracles are not a prevalent way of God acting they're, they are supposed to be exceptional so you can suggest that as a natural rule there's no prophecy in exile because people aren't on that level and maybe perhaps because of that even when an individual happens to reach that level he's as a rule miraculously withheld from prophecy okay so going back to what the Raman says in Shemar Prakram, that a person who, who does everything in Shem Shemaim, I say, says the Raman, that he's no less than a prophet. That he's not less than a prophet. I would suggest that the Raman means the following. If you have a person that lives every action that he does for the sake of heaven, as the Raman describes it at length, I really summarized it, you should look at it. If a person lives that way, then the Raman is saying, I believe that this person is on the level, the character level, of a prophet. If he's not a prophet, it must be that he was miraculously withheld from being a prophet. So that's, I think, what the Rambam means when he says, I maintain that he's no less than enough. He means to say, if you'd ask me that about this person, about how worthy is he, I maintain that he's no less worthy than a prophet. He is obviously not prophesying, because then you wouldn't have to say he's less than a prophet. But he's worthy of it. So I say he's no less than enough. So it's like the Gemara talks about the Gemara Cut, and the Gemara says, I think it's about Arapuna. He, this such and such a person, was worthy of the Shunni resting on him, but alas and alack, he was in exile, and in exile there's no prophecy. So what kind of person can we say that about? What does it take to say, well, this person is worthy of being a prophet? The Rambam is saying what it takes is a person who does everything for the sake of heaven. So taking that back to the Rambam, um, now, Taking that back to the Rambam, he was such a person, right? Because he says he says in the introduction to Marduvuka that the reason why he did this innovation and bent bent the law to do something that hasn't been done yet during exile is because it's um, it has a it has an aspect of sin to it. So he's bending the law. It's not a, it's not a kind of formal iser like being Michal Shabbos or Bias Asuras or reading Trevis. But it's not the way that the law is supposed to be structured. It's not the way it's supposed to be taught. Well, he's a person who's called Ma'asa L'shem Shemayim. He's a person who can bend the law. Like, a prophet can really issue Hayrasha and, and truly abrogate a law temporarily. So do a person who's on this kind of level can bend the law. L'shem Shemayim. Incidentally, in the Igeras Tema, the letter of the Ramadan to Yemen, he said that Rav who revealed his calculations of when he thought Mashiach was going to come, although he knew, Ramam says that the Gemara warns against doing that, he was Kalmas of Hashem Shemayim. He was a person that did everything Hashem Shemayim. So again, this idea that if a person does everything Hashem Shemayim, it justifies a certain kind of, certain kinds of actions that have a certain aspect of sin to them. Okay. So, remember the Ramam says in the Shemayim Prakim that for Chazal to use, say this expression, Kalmas of Yudashim Shemayim, that was said undoubtedly with divine aid. So you see how it fits together. It's very simple. If someone who's on this level of if someone on that level is really on the level of a prophet, but he just happens to not receive prophecy because there's a divine decree that he doesn't receive prophecy. But essentially that level, the level of, of living, of doing everything is a level of being worthy of prophecy. So then similarly, to articulate that level so well as Chazal have done with this PD statement that books have been written about and they articulated so well to articulate it so well itself in other words, to understand that level which is a level of prophecy to understand that level you have to have a certain level of prophecy so what the Rambam says over here is that the statement was said with divine aid now I want you to think about that what do we mean by divine aid is that a kind of prophecy but we're not prophets, right? After Gullus. So what's divine aid? So in order to understand this too, you have to look at um, the second volume, Chilik Beis, Parak Mem of the Marnebuchim. In that Parak, chapter 45, the Ramam goes through the levels of prophecy. And the first two levels, the Ramam says the first two levels, are technically not Nebuah, technically not prophecy. They really are called Ruach HaKodesh, Sometimes they're included, they're called prophecy, in a general sense, they're included in prophecy, although they're technically not prophecy. And what those are, are the following. 
First of the degree of prophecy consists of the fact that an individual receives divine help. Again, we have this idea of divine aid. And this divine help, now, you know, I said before, you should always study the originals, look at the Arabic. The Arabic term is somewhat different between what the Ramam uses here and what he uses in the Shemana Prak. Okay? Um, but he talks about divine aid, divine help that moves, moves and activates a person to do a great, righteous, and important action. So if a person is moved to do a great thing, um, that's that's a kind of Ruach Not just everyone, however, he says, who has received divine help in some chance matter, such as the acquisition of property, the achievement, and the concerns him alone, is called Ruach Hashem, someone who is accompanied by the Spirit of, Lord, the, of the Lord, only if someone has done a good action of capital import or an action that leads to that result. So if someone is moved, someone could be moved by, uh, it gets a divine help that moves an action to do a great thing, an important thing, that's the first level of divine of divine aid, which is counted in the degrees of prophecy, although it's not tech, really prophecy. And the second degree is that an individual finds that a certain thing has descended upon him and another force has come upon him and has made him speak. So he talks in wise sayings and words of praise in useful admonitory dicta or concerning governmental or divine matters. While he's awake and his senses function as usual, and that's called speaking through Ruach through the Holy Spirit. So, what I want to suggest is that the Rambam, who is a person of and as he describes in the Shemana Prakim, in order to even to say, articulate that statement as well as Chazal did, you have to have divine aid. Now, what kind of divine aid does he mean? Well, he doesn't mean prophecy because prophecy ceased with exile. What he must mean is the lower levels, the divine aid to do something great or to say something great. So having the inspiration to articulate this whole kind of path of worship with this concise statement, comes from, I would imagine, the second level of divine aid. Now, there's a chapter, or an introduction to a chapter, rather, where the Rambam actually talks about him having received some of that divine aid in the composition of the guide. And this is the introduction to the third volume. Remember I mentioned in the beginning of the third volume, the Ramam talks about Masim Akav, he explains the work of the chariot. And there he says that, we have made it clear several times, the chief aim of this treatise is to explain what can be explained by about of Masim Akav and Masim Akav. But these are mysteries of the Torah, and we're not allowed to divulge the mysteries. If this is so, so again he says, he says, um, we're not allowed to teach this and I'll divulge it. And that's the reason why the knowledge of this matter has ceased to exist in the entire religious community. So that nothing great or small remains of this. But the Rambam himself believes that he has rediscovered it. So what should he do? What should he do? So he says, should I not write it down? If I had omitted sending something down something of that which has appeared to me as clear, so that knowledge would perish when I perish, as is inevitable. So he says, if I wouldn't write this book, so now the Ram is telling us why he wrote this, because if I wouldn't write this book, then the knowledge that he discovered would perish when he does. And by the way, parenthetically, there's a question about that. Why can he teach it orally like it was taught historically? We'll get to that soon. Then he says, I should have considered that conduct as extremely cowardly with regard to you and everyone who's perplexed. It would have been as if we were robbing one who deserves the truth of the truth or begrudging an heir's inheritance. So I can't not write something down. On the other hand, as has been stated before, we're not allowed to, expo- uh, we're not going to let it give an explicit exposition of this knowledge by legal prohibition, halachically. So what should I do? In addition, he says, the truth regarding these things has not come to him with divine revelation. Nor did I receive what I believe in these matters from a teacher. He didn't have a nevuah. He didn't have a revelation. Nor does he have a tradition. He didn't have it from a teacher. But he studied the prophets and Chazal together with his own Eon and showed him that things are undoubtedly so-and-so, as he's going to explain. So what should he do? So he says the following. That rightly regarded reflection and divine aid in this matter, divine aid, have moved me to the position, which he says then he's going to write in a very specific way where he's making allusions. And this he said he was moved to do by divine aid. Now that's that same expression here. It is the same Arabic expression. 
for the first level of Ruach HaKadosh. So here the Ram says an amazing thing. He says, you know, I'm going to teach you my summer cover now, and I'm going to do it with a loosens. But you should know, I don't, I didn't have a prophecy about this. Now, even the fact that the Ram says, oh, I didn't have a prophecy about this. You don't say that unless you're sort of, almost, dealing with prophecy. And then the next line the Ram says, I did have a divine aid that led me to teach it in this way. Divine aid is the exact same term the Ram uses. To describe the first level of Ruach HaKadosh, where the person is moved to do a great thing, to take on a great initiative. So I want to put this all together, and what I'm showing you is that the Rambam did something that wasn't done since the time of the prophets, based on the fact that he was a person who did all his actions in Shem which makes him no, uh, no less than an Avi, meaning someone who should have Nebuah, except that God decreed that he shouldn't, and also puts him on those first levels of prophecy, which are really preparatory, which are really paths, steps to, to prophecy, but are not prophecy per se, but yet they're called prophecy, of having divine aid and being moved by the Spirit of Hashem to do, to take a great action. So this is what it seems from the, um, from the setup of the guide. Now I want to comment on that last thing that I mentioned before. The Rambam says, look, if I wouldn't teach this, you know, so we're talking about why the Rambam with the Merdebuchim. Here's the innovation of the Merdebuchim. He's writing a book about matters that weren't written about from the times of the Nevi'im. So he's basically sort of, I could say, um, reintroducing prophetic kind of writing. That, that's what we're talking about over here. But the Rambam is saying, I'm doing something here that hasn't been done since the prophets. Because I am no less than the level of the prophets. See? Because he says, why am I doing this? Because all my actions are Shem Shemayim. And he says in the Shemayim of that someone who does everything with Shem Shemayim is no less than the level of the prophets. So the fact that he's <coughs> doing something that's really the, the purview of the prophets fits in perfectly with the fact that he considers himself to be um, almost on that level and to have that divine aid, that same divine aid that was necessary to teach this teaching of doing everything with Shem Shemayim. Why did he do this? Why did he do this? So he says in the introduction to Chele Gimel, he says, well, because here he rediscovered this kind of wisdom, the secret wisdom of the Torah. And what's he supposed to do? When he dies, it's going to be lost. Now, think about this. It's so strange. He says that this was taught orally. It wasn't written in books. Okay, so that's why it got lost. Okay. Now he rediscovered it. So why can't he, re, why can't he restart the oral tradition and teach us orally? Why does he say that if I don't teach this and write this out in a book, it's going to be lost when I die? And for this, and this will be the conclusion of today's discussion, for this we have to go to the real beginning of the guide, which is his letter to the student. The guide was written as a series of chapters to a, a student of Yosef Yehuda, and um, he was going to receive a chapter after chapter, and the Rambam writes a, a historical account of his studying together with his Talmud. And I'm going to just summarize it. I'll read briefly from it. He says, you came to me from faraway country to read text under my guidance. So he studied together with the Rambam. And he says, the Rambam, he saw, I saw that you were worthy to have the secrets of the prophetic books revealed to you. So I began to let you see certain flashes and give you certain indications. And he wanted additional knowledge and to make clear to you certain things pertaining to divine matters. And you were perplexed. I did not cease dissuading you from this. My purpose in this was that the truth be established in your mind. Quote, okay, whenever you, during your association with me, a biblical verse or some text of the sages was mentioned, in which there was a point to some strange notion, I did not refrain, refrain from explaining it to you. So Rambam had this student with him. He saw that the student wanted to know the secrets of the Torah, the deeper meanings, and he was slowly teaching them to him. And whenever something would come up that had some secret, he would, he would explain it to you. Then, Rambam continues, Then when God decreed our separation and you betook yourself elsewhere, these meetings aroused in me a resolution that had slackened. Your absence moved me to compose this treatise, which I have composed for you and for those like you, you however few they are. So God decreed our separation. You betook yourself elsewhere. So I decided that, you know what, I'm going to write this book. So here we have this, this autobiographical account about how the Rama originally was teaching these teachings to his student orally. But then he reached a point where, as he writes in the introduction to the third, to the third volume of the Mayor, if he wouldn't write it down in a book, these teachings would disappear when he dies. 
well, why can't he give it an oral teaching? The answer is that he attempted to do so, but as you remember that expression, he used God decreed the separation of the student. So the Rambam saw the fact that this is not just a, a random event in the Rambam's life. The fact that he was teaching it in a certain way to a student and then that student had to leave him. That taught the Rambam something. Now, how did that teach the Rambam something? How does he understand that as God's decree? I don't know. I'm not going to go into that now. But I'm showing you this pattern here that the Rambam is doing a major innovation with this book, putting something in writing, the kind of book, kind of writing that hasn't been done since the writings of the prophets. And that's because it was originally taught orally and it was transmitted from, from master to student in that specific way, which is what the Rambam's preferred approach would have been, and he would have continued in that tradition. He did, in fact, continue originally teaching this from uh, master to student to his prized pupil, Rabbi Yisif. But then when God decreed the pupil separation, Rambam says, look, I understand that this oral transmission is not the way it's going to be anymore. And now I have to teach in a way that it will not disappear. And as someone who does everything with Hashem Shemayim, I'm, a, I'm entitled to do things, to bend the law and write, do innovations, and do something which only prophets have done. Okay? So I hope, I believe that this is a, a wonderful introduction to just how monumental this work is. Had you monumental, the Rambam considered his own project, and how amazing it is, just the actual work. I always say that you should never be surprised about the depth in the, in the guide. It's always be much deeper than you realize. And if you want to, if it's necessary for you to understand how that could be, you could accept because it was written with um, divine aid. So, like the good books of the prophets, we don't, uh, we don't put a, a, a maximum on the amount of depth we'll find there. So that's the, uh, that's the uh, point I wanted to make. Just to summarize one more time, um, the Rambam here is doing an innovation. He's writing something that hasn't been done from the times of the prophets. That's because he himself is a person who's on the level of not less than a prophet, which I think means he should have been a prophet, except that God decreed that he shouldn't because in exile there are no prophets, but he still is on that level personally in his character and in fact reaches the first levels of prophecy, which are not really prophecy, but they're included in prophecy. And those are divine aid. And therefore, as he says, I had divine aid in writing at least parts of this book. And furthermore, he, he insists I didn't have a revelation didn't have a revelation, which is also suggests that he had something close, where he considered himself to be almost a prophet. So that's the person that we're dealing with, and that is the book that we're dealing with. Like I said, we're going to, I think, select a few different topics, or perhaps learn the introduction, figure out what to do, how to dip our toes into this book, and hopefully encourage you to do as our mom wants us to do, which is to study it constantly.